Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you gathered us here this morning to lift up songs of praise and adoration to you, Lord, because of your great love that you've shown us. Because, Lord, you have moved mightily in our minds and hearts and in our lives, Lord. And now as we turn our attention to your word, I pray, Lord, that you use this time for your glory. And I pray, Lord, that you use me to speak clearly uh, your word. And that, Lord, we will use this time to consider what it is that you have given to us in Scripture. And that, Lord, we might be challenged and comforted but also, Lord, that you'll just use this uh, to grow us and to sanctify us, as you always do. So, Lord, we thank you, and we lift this prayer up in Christ's name. Amen. So, <clears throat> we are continuing in First John, but before we get into that, I wanted to let you in on just some family history of my own. Uh, see, the Schutz family is not known for great height. As those of you who have ever talked to me, I know this. But what you may not know is that my great-grandfather was a jockey. On my dad's side, he was a jockey. Yes, a jockey. You know, those really short guys who ride the horse, right? A jockey? Okay, good. Now, right now, as I speak, I am the tallest shoots in my family line, which, given the jockey comment, is probably not much of an accomplishment, but that's the reality However, there has been a slow trend towards the shootsmen the getting taller, which is why I assume my son Ezra, who's who left to go to the class, uh, will probably just be a little bit taller than me. Um, maybe, maybe he'll be the first shoots to hit six foot. However, however, I don't expect my son to be six seven. Now, I don't expect that because not only have we already talked about the shoots genetic line, but my wife's genetic line has no NBA centers in it as well. And again, those of you laughing clearly know that those guys tend to be the tallest on a basketball court. Um, so in case you don't know, the S center, that's the big guy who usually gets all the rebounds, right? So nevertheless, I don't have much genetic hope for Ezra being much taller than average. And I mention all this height and genetics because we tend to be like our parents. We inherit our traits from our parents. And as I've mentioned, just one physical trait, height, the reality is that we inherit so much other things from our parents. Personality comes from parents, and we pick up on their tendencies. How they behave, we tend to behave, and we end up sort of mimicking their mannerisms. And so in our passage this morning, we're going to see a similar reality. We will see that we are children of another parent, a parent beyond our earthly parent, which is why I've titled today's message, Children of the Light. So if you're able, will you please stand for the reading of God's Word? And today we find ourselves in 1 John chapter 2, 28 through 3, 10. And God's word says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink 
from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are, children, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus puts, in him, excuse me, puts hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or has known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for everyone, excuse me, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Now, John here in this passage that we looked at just now is restating earlier things that we have already examined. John again mentions abiding, practicing righteousness, and he even briefly mentions the world. John is clearly referencing earlier themes. While we have examined these ideas in previous sermons, John, however, gives us a new context to consider. The context is that, uh, is that is this of parents, that we are children of God, excuse me, that there are those that are the children of God and there are those that are the children of the devil. So sort of the big point that I want to draw out for us tonight, or is it tonight? It's morning, isn't it? <laughs> oh dear, I'm in trouble if I don't know what time of day it is already. Nevertheless, the big point I want to draw out this morning is that in Christ, we are children of God. This morning we will be comparing and contrasting these two children, whether the child of God or the child of the devil. And we will look at the characteristics of these children and how we can determine whether or not we find ourselves being a child of the, of the light or being a child of the devil. So the first characteristic, if we go back to the beginning of our text, 1 John 2, 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Righteousness is being just 
Righteousness is doing what is morally good. So, if we were to look at this, many might claim, generally speaking, most people might do this, upon self-reflection would say, yeah, I'm good. I'm righteous. They might look at other people around them and compare and contrast and go, yeah, sure, I'm righteous. However, this begs the question, what is the standard of which we're using to determine this righteousness? How are we going to understand it? How are we going to evaluate righteousness? But if you were listening carefully, you notice this, John already did. Look what John said. He says, if you know he is righteous, God is righteous. God is the standard of his own righteousness. He is the measure, right? Righteousness is one of God's attributes, his nature, his being is to be righteous. And Scripture does not shy away from this. It makes this very evident. Two quick examples here are found in, in Psalm eleven seventeen. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. Uh, the upright shall behold his face. And similarly, another one, is found in Isaiah 45, 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. And frankly, we could go on. We could spend hours pulling up texts because this is a theme throughout Scripture. Yet I picked these two for a particular reason. They are different genre. You see, there's different genres in Scripture. And, and one of them, the first one we looked at, the psalm, is from biblical poetry, right? Poetry, which tends to be this, you know, metaphorical language or more, um, you know, abstract sometimes we try to understand it. Whereas Isaiah is prophecy, Right, something God is revealing directly to a people. And yet the fact that we see this righteous theme throughout both of these genres and really throughout all the genres of Scripture, it shows that this is not just some sort of abstract idea of, okay, God's sort of righteous. No, it shows that there's, this is a concrete reality where we see God's righteousness everywhere and in all things. So the Bible is not trying to be cute or flowery with this idea of God's righteousness. no. This is a solid truth, and it's mentioned throughout Scripture. God is righteous, and He, in His goodness, revealed to us how to be righteous. So God communicates the standard of His righteousness. So if we must be righteous, we must obey His commandments. Simple enough, right? Let us consider just the Ten Commandments for today's argument. Right? We could go to Exodus 20 and read them very clearly, but I think probably most of you are familiar with this, so I'm going to summarize them here. We have a commandment number one, don't have any other gods before God. Right? Have no other gods. Don't make uh, for yourself any idols or images. Commandment number three, don't use the Lord's name in vain. Number four, keep the Sabbath. Number five, 
honor your mother and father. Number six, don't murder. Number seven, don't commit adultery. Number eight, don't steal. Number nine, don't give a false testimony. And last but not least within the Ten Commandments, do not covet. Got it? You good? Did you survive that? Did you check off every single one of those as passing? Of course not. I don't either. See, we've all sinned. We all have sin. And as I mentioned, John is reiterating some points from earlier, and he's made this very point uh, way back at the beginning of his letter in chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John very clearly makes this point. We are fallen creatures. We are sinful. This is the result of the fall. In Adam, we all sin. We cannot be righteous under our own efforts. So those of you in our home fellowship groups know this. We've talked about this not long ago as we've been studying through the book of Galatians. And look at what Galatians 3, 10, and 11 says. For all who rely on the work of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. We can't measure up. I just used just the the Ten Commandments and we could find error, let alone other commandments that we could find ourselves falling in. As Isaiah says, our righteousness is that of a filthy rag. Mm. We are cursed. Yet, there's light shining at the end of that passage. In that passage, we just looked at the Galatians there, it still is up there. The righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness eludes the natural man. But praise be to God that there is a way to righteousness. That way is faith in the work of Christ. Let's jump ahead from what we just were in Galatians 3 and go to Galatians 3, 23 through 28. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, right? Is that not what we've been discussing? Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then... The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free and there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. See, the law condemns us, but it also displays our desperate need for a Savior. 
since we are unable to obey the law. But Christ, but Christ is our Savior. He takes our place on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Our faith is not built upon our own righteousness, but it's built upon the righteousness and the action of Christ. We do not earn salvation. It is the gift of God. John also has stated this earlier in his letter too. We look back at chapter 2 and we see in the beginning of chapter 2 it explains this, that Christ is our advocate with the Father, meaning He defends us because Christ has taken the righteous wrath that we all deserved. See, because remember, we deserved wrath in our sin, but Christ took that punishment. However, we can fall into a dangerous teaching here if we're not careful. It's called antinomianism. And antinomianism means against the law. And again, it's a, a big theological term that we use and we can throw around to you know, sound smart, but I'm going to let you in on a secret. If you just learn definitions, I mean, you can hang with it. I mean, that's really true in discipline, but that's a side tangent for another day. But antinomianism incorrectly claims that since we are saved by grace, we, can, we have no obligation to the law, and we don't have to obey the law of God. We don't have to reflect it. We don't have to look at it. We don't have to consider it, right? We're saved by grace. We're free from grace, so let's do whatever we please. To present it in another way, since we have faith, we are saved, and again, we can do whatever we want. The law of God has no application in our lives since we are under grace. That is the antinomian error. However, John clearly addresses this danger in verse 6. And the verse 6 reminds you, says, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or has known him. So we can see that this is a dangerous teaching because it excludes our effort to obey the law while we have faith. But let's continue looking through our passage today. Chapter one, excuse me, chapter three, verses one through three. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, we are children of God, not because I've earned the right, not because I've moved towards him in the right way. We are children because we are loved by God. We are called by him. He has given us faith, and we see truth 
throughout Scripture. Look at this. God's sovereign work of salvation is directly noted in John's prologue. Look at uh, John's gospel, John 1, 11 through 12. There it is. And I have some other ones too we'll be reading quickly. But John 1, 11 through 12. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Children are born of God. Consider a similar idea. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of the same gospel, this is what he says, and it's there, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God.'" One more. But also, John chapter 6, verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So once again, it is of God doing, God uh, initiating, God moving. Now you might think maybe this is just a very John idea. Well, Let's look at what Paul has to say in Titus 3, 4 through 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs, children, right? Similar notion there. So, brothers and sisters, God's love for us is held tight in His gift of faith, giving us righteousness for adoption by God into His eternal family does this because of his mercy, not because of any goodness in me or in you, for we know that there is no righteous. No, not one. They've earned nothing, nothing, but God is rich in mercy. So this work of God changes us. We're transformed from sinner to saint. We're now children of God, which mean, means we will be changed by God. When we reach the end of this life, we will stand before God as we enter into eternity to be made like Christ. We will know the fullness of this promise then. However, however, there is a task for us that awaits that day. And that task is found in verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. See, I hope in Christ. I can assure you that because how can I not? 
Look at what I've already pointed out about how none of us can measure up in our own righteousness. I do not achieve that standard of righteousness. So all my hope is in Christ. I am in desperate need of Christ. I have no chance to even pretend to be righteous. But so it also says that I must purify myself as I work towards righteousness. Again, we looked at verse 6, but also consider what Romans 6, 1 says. 6 verses 1 and 2, excuse me. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, Paul goes on to explain that since we have been baptized into Christ, we identify with his death and resurrection, that old sinful self, dead. That old self and natural self are gone. And our new self is alive in Christ. Sin is no longer the Lord over us. Sin does not have dominion over the life of the child of God. Now, does that mean that the child of God never sins? No. We fall to sin, absolutely. At times, for sure. But we have already noted, again, earlier in this text, earlier in this letter, way back in chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see this? This is what it is to repent. This is what it means to have repentance and confession and to turn from our sin. And that's why, if we return to the opening verse, verse 28 of our text this morning, we see why we can have confidence. Look at this. It says, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. See, we have confidence for two reasons. One, we are a child of God. We are made righteous. He has saved us. He has called us. He has redeemed us. It's done. We are justified by him. But the second reason is we are now pursuing his righteousness. We are attempting and moving and continuing to walk in this new life that we've been called to live. We are to put off sin and to put on righteousness. Now, again, I've already said this, but again, it never hurts to mention this again. Now, we won't be perfect at this. We won't, not in this life. But we still have confidence on the day that we see Christ because He is our Redeemer and because we have been walking with Him. We've abided in Him. We will all one day have to give an account before God for our time here right now in this life. And so we really have to sit here and give this passage real consideration here right now. Are we living a life that is consistent 
with what we see in this passage. This thought continues to stir us when we look at the contrast John states in verse 4. Look again with me, if you will. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now I have to confess, I have had seasons in my life in which I have practiced lawlessness. I would have to imagine many of you have as well. And this could potentially be a very troubling passage for us. There are those that have repeated sins in our lives. Yet confession here is the key to understanding our salvation all while having sin also in our lives. See, confession confession is not just merely telling God what we have done because He already knows that. He's all known. Confession, therefore, is, is admitting our failure and then we plead for mercy and we call out to our advocate, Christ, and we find peace and strength to fight our flesh. Consider in Romans chapter 7, verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is the struggle in the child of God, a desire for righteousness and a failure to be righteous. Yet, there's still much more comfort and hope in the words of Jeremiah. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. <sighs> Amen. Oh. This, this brings us then to this doctrine of sanctification. Sanctification is a progression, excuse me, a progressive process. This is mean God is working in our lives. We are righteous positionally in Christ. End of the story. That's justification. You can't change that. None of you, us sitting here who have faith in Christ are any more or any less justified than the day we were and then we were first saved. That doesn't change. Yet we all, uh, excuse me, yet we don't always live righteously. And in Christ, we have righteousness, right? However, we do not always act upon that righteousness. So again, we can see that this gets disconnected or confusing. But consider Philippians 
when it says that uh, we see God's faithfulness in our salvation, when it says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, God does not just merely provide our salvation and then just leave us on our own. God is active in our lives, and the Holy Spirit dwells within the believer. And Jesus makes this clear when he says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. For you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And that's John 14, 16 through 17. See, the Holy Spirit is an active and present in the life of the believer. He uses ordinary means, however, to grow, excuse ordinary means of grace to grow us in holiness. We have the Bible, fellowship, prayer, singing songs like we did this morning, the Lord's Supper. See, the Bible is God's word of truth, and it brings light to our lives. It shows us of our sin. It shows us God. The Bible is one of these ordinary means of grace. Fellowship is that communal life, the sharing of joys, and the sharing of burdens amongst God's people. Fellowship is one of those ordinary means of grace. And then consider this morning. We've been gathered here, and we've prayed together. We've sung songs and praise and adoration together, and we've well, now currently actively listening to the Word of God preached together. All of these are ordinary means of grace. And the Lord's Supper is taken in remembrance of Christ's work. We participate in that because it, too, is an ordinary means of grace. See, we are all progressing at different rates of sanctification. Some of us are newer to the faith. Some of us have been a Christian for a long time. Some of us have overcome much, while some continue to struggle with various sins, and we're wrestling with those sins. None of our success, none of our struggles change that position in Christ, right? Justified. And God has loved us too much to leave us there. And so our sanctification often does not proceed in which the speed we'd like it to, but God has promised to complete that work, to conform us into the image of Christ. This is why verse 5 is so vital to this passage. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in, and in him, there is no sin. See, Jesus appeared to take away our sins. He's doing that through sanctification. He's purifying us. We've already noted that there's this future aspect where we'll totally understand this truth 
but as well as there's this progressive idea of sanctification, this ongoing process that, that continues on in the life of the child of God. So if we continue with our text, we see the opposite of what we have just examined. Verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Now the key sentence or phrase is make a practice of sinning. Make a practice of sinning. John has mentioned similar ideas again. In chapter 1, he spoke of those who are walk in the darkness. Chapter 2, he spoke of those who hate their brothers and also of the antichrists. Those are all examples of people who make a practice of sinning. I mean, think about it. If you're going to walk in darkness, you're actively practicing sin. If you're going to hate your brother, that's actively hating your brother, which is an active sin. Or again, Antichrist being opposed to Christ, those are all active, uh, making practice actively sinning. So here's the key this person, they have no desire to know Christ. They want to live according to their own standard. They don't even attempt righteousness. And frankly, they would probably scoff at the idea of conforming themselves into, uh, excuse me, conforming themselves to the commands of God. So to live according to your own standard is, by definition, that sinfulness of pride. Those who live like this and live in this way live in this sinful way. They think they know better than God. They think that they have a plan. They think that they have a better idea. And is that not the very same heart that was in the garden with the serpent? Hence, that's why they belong to the devil, as John says here. See, so remember those who walk in the darkness love the darkness. Those who hate their brother love themselves more than any other. Antichrists are, again, literally against Christ. These are the reasons John can make such a strong statement here that they belong to the devil because they make a practice of sinning. And the difference between making a practice of sinning and the child of God is that the child of God will sin, yes, but they will have repentance, whereas the child of the devil goes on with sin with no care and no repentance whatsoever. See, when the child of God sins, there's sorrow, remorse for their sin. Yet this is not the case for those that we've just been looking at, those who make a practice of sinning. They love their sin. Hence John's next statement in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Do you see this? 
This is exactly everything that, we, that God has already laid out about his redemptive plan of sanctification and this process of sanctification. When God saves, he saves absolutely. There's no question. There's no challenge. This is the theme we've seen over and over again in this very letter. God saves and he preserves his people. In my last, in my last sermon, we looked at these antichrists. And we made it very clear they're antichrists with us. Sorry, I'm not pointing at anyone in particular, just making a gesture. If you wasn't accusing anyone. I realized how that could have looked. I'm like signifying this side of the room. Sorry, I'm not. Um, <clears throat> things that pop into your head while you're preaching, I'm sorry. Um, but we looked at these antichrists, and John made it very clear that they, they were among us at one point, yet they were not of us. And so this is that parallel concept that those who make a practice of, of sinning have to be of the devil because it's impossible for them to be of God, just like these antichrists. They were never really of us because they were against Christ the whole time. These people practice sinning. They might look a certain way on the outside, but again, it's this, the habits are sin. So, Let's, let's pause here for a moment and consider all that we've just learned and examined and ponder these truths. Ask yourself these, these questions. Do you long to be righteous? Are you excited for that future day to finally have no more sin? If this is you, then praise be to God. Thank God for working in your life. And praise God that he's going to continue to work in you. He's going to continue to sanctify you. He's going to continue to purify you. However, consider these questions. If you desire your own standard over that of God's, Excuse me, do you desire your own standard over that of God's? Do you prefer sin over obedience to God? If that is you, then for your own sake, I call you to repentance this morning. You see, for this morning you have heard that there is no hope outside of Christ. Repent and turn from your sins. And today... Today will be the day of your salvation. But I want to give us a quote from J.C. Ryle. I don't know if you can see that picture that well, but that's okay. Here's what he says in his book, Holiness. When an, when an eagle is happy in an iron cage, when a sheep is happy in water, when an owl is happy in the blaze of the noonday sun, when a fish is happy on dry land, then, and not until then, will I admit that the unsanctified man could be happy in heaven. See, eagles, they want to soar free. 
sheep, they want to wander the pasture. Owls are nocturnal, and the fish need that water. So too does the child of God long to be like God. So too does the child of God long to be with God and to know God and to be with Him and to love Him forever. If you want cool cartoons, I highly recommend looking into Paul Cox of Reftoons. Cool stuff. Um, that's who I got the picture from. Not my own artwork by any means. Anyways, hopefully you see this comparison that he's making here. It's powerful. See, if we are a child of God, this is what we long for. We long to be with God. We long to know God, just as these different animals want to be where they want to be. We, the children of God, want to be with and be like God. So I began this message talking about physical attributes inherited from our parents. And I know I have inherited unchangeable things from my parents or my great-grandparents, right? That jockey who come a long way. For John gives us great hope in attributes, excuse me, great hope in attributes we inherit from our heavenly Father. A heart that is made new. A heart that is alive to God. He has given His children an attribute that brings eternal life. Brings eternal life. Let us be thankful for this gift that moves us towards Him all the days of our lives. That brings joy and peace to all those who are the children of light. Let's pray. Father, thank you that I can call you Father, for I'm your child. And thank you, Lord, for all that that is true to. Thank you, Lord, for your continued sanctifying works in our life, that you, Lord, are continuing to conform us into the image of your Son, and you're continuing to make us be like Christ. But Lord, also thank you that we, right now, as we sit or stand, are justified by the work of Christ, that we are and we have the righteousness of Christ, not because of anything we do, but because of everything that he has done for us. So Lord, thank you for this time that we had to get into your word. And I thank you, Lord, for all that you're doing. And Lord, may you strengthen us and continue the work that you promised to do. We ask this prayer in Christ's name. Amen.